1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wisoo, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysu. Before joining Larry with today's episode, let's get a few words from Hayden Outdoors, the brand that sells land through our conservation today.
1: So if you could buy a hunting ranch, all the state's laws are different. In some places, as I understand it, there can actually be properties that are landlocked. In Colorado, if you buy a place, they're generally guaranteed access to that property. But in some states, I've heard that there could be landlocked pieces of property, and if you purchase those without doing your homework, you might be buying a helicopter to get in and actually hunt your place. and That wouldn't be much fun. You know, one thing I've found doing this uh, real estate business is a lot of times people come out with an idea of what they can afford and it turns out they get less than they wanted. And with a smaller piece of property, especially if you're talking about deer and elk out west, unless you're bordering a lot of national forest, you're right in a migration route, it takes a little bit bigger piece to really be practical to have good success on. But what I have found, it's worked for guys a lot of times, usually there's four or five guys that will do that western trip, uh, they may be done it for years together, Sometimes you can pool your resources and come up with a deal where three or four guys can come up with a big enough piece of ground that it's really good. And with Colorado, for instance, you've got an archery season and three or four rifle seasons. So even if they don't go all, all at the same time, they can utilize that property and, and get a big enough piece of property where they're going to have deer and elk. You know, one mistake I see people make a lot of times when they're looking at properties is they'll, they'll buy a piece of property wanting to put a lodge on it or a cabin, a place to stay while they're actually hunting. And they won't consider where the power is, the water is, if they could get a well in a certain spot. And they end up building right in the middle of their property or at the backside of their property where they've got to go completely through the property to get to the to the place they're going to stay. So it's always a great idea when you get a piece of property make sure that there's a place that you can access from the outside that's not going to affect the hunting on the inside. Because a lot of species, you know, whitetails might just run off and get in the brush, let you drive through and then come back out and be huntable that afternoon. But something like elk, if you run through the herd of elk, They're going to probably leave the place unless it's a giant property. So you want to get a place where you can set up, do your camping, have your homestead, your cabin, your lodge, where you can get into it without affecting the hunting part of the property. That's going to make a big difference. Once you get there, if you've got to go through your elk to get to your cabin, you might not stay in the rest of the week. So do yourself a favor. Make sure you find a property that you can get the cabin or house built on it's not going to affect the hunting
2: now on with today's episode
1: david
3: fox thank you so much for that introduction and welcome to another session if you will of campfire talk our campfire today is going to be here around oh parts different parts of texas i guess is the best way to describe it just came back from an absolutely fantastic weekend at the uh, texas wildlife association convention this was our 37th annual convention and fundraiser. Texas Wildlife Association started back in 1985 and came about as a result of a phone call from a friend of mine who happened to be the assistant chief of law enforcement at Texas Parks and Wildlife Department in Austin. And he said, Larry, there's a little bit of a problem going on here. The uh, TPWD is up for the Sunset Act, which is a revision about, I think, every seven years where the different departments of the state of Texas are evaluated and and reestablished, if you will. And and uh, he said, there's some things going on here you need to know about. He and I talked for a little while. and. And uh, he said, "I think the best thing for you to do is come to Austin to the headquarters building here and, and visit with some people." So indeed, that's kind of what I did. I called two friends of mine, Murphy Ray and Gary Machen. And Murphy had worked for the department like I had. Actually, I, in Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and actually I had replaced Murphy when he went into private practice and worked the uh, South Texas technical assistance biologist position that had been set up under Murphy for the first five years, and then I did it for five years, and then finally I got a little tired of dealing with a lot of different state policies that we had to deal with in terms of not being able to work at the time. You could only work 40 hours a week, and generally with what I was doing was setting up things with landowners in terms of management programs and hunter groups, by the end of the third day i had more than surpassed my <laughs> 40 hours for the week so I uh, decided to get into private practice which i did and that's was not long after that that i got the call from this game warden friend of mine who was assistant chief of law enforcement and said hey you need to come to austin and and see what's going on so i did i called gary machin and murphy ray we went to austin and to i had set up a meeting with the wildlife division head uh head of that wildlife division there at the time and we got there and he goes guys i really don't have any time to meet with you right now i need for you to go down to room 231. he said i'll be down there in about 10 15 minutes and he said then we can visit we walked to room 231 it happened to be a broom closet uh about the size of most people's pantries and and uh i'm sure he thought it was funny uh to send us down there because at the time he he, he was a totally different person from what most of the biologists were in the state of Texas who were very landowner, land, private land ownership, schooled, if you will. Uh, Texas is 97% private land. So you want to get anything done as far as wildlife or habitat, you've got to work with landowners. And this particular biologist never really did quite catch on to the fact that in Texas, you have to work with the landowners if you really want to try to accomplish something with wildlife. So. Long story short, uh, he thought it was funny, we didn't, and he told us we really couldn't get anything accomplished, so Gary Murphy and I made a list of 50 landowners, called those guys, I did, and set up a meeting at the, with what was then the Wild Hilton in Kerrville, Texas, and. 49 of those folks arrived. They were there, the 50th person was a friend of mine who had to go to a funeral, but he says, I'll be there as soon as the funeral's over with. And while we were there, we farmed the Texas Wildlife Association, set up a board of directors, elected a president and an executive board to kind of handle things on a day-to-day basis. From that limited membership of essentially 50 people, or 53 including Murphy and Gary and I, uh, we have grown to somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10,000 or so, maybe a few more over the last 35 years. But while that number may not be very high in terms of numbers, when you look at the amount of acreage and private land these people control in the state of Texas, it, it amounts to a substantial amount of most all the wildlife habitat, if you get right down to it. Uh, there are there's a few places around that are not members, but as a whole, the vast majority of the state of Texas that has wildlife habitat on them outside of in the cities, uh, if you want to include that as kind of an urban habitat, uh, a lot of that land that's available in Texas for wildlife is, is under the ownership of the landowners that we have in our Texas Wildlife Association thing. And since that time of formation, we have done so many different things in terms of education in in the state of Texas dealing with wildlife, wildlife management. Initially, we were more of a hunting organization. We're still a very strong advocate and very strong hunting organization, but we also take a look at a lot of the non-hunted species, if you will, the non-game animals. We do a lot of work in proven habitat for everything from uh, the invertebrates to the small vertebrates to, you know, the big game that's there and the songbirds, the uh, the game birds and, and everything kind of in between and more importantly, so very often the habitat itself, the plants that are there, because when you get right down to it, it all starts with a soil and works up. So if we properly take care of the soil and provide water by whatever means that we can and provide water for wildlife. The, the rest will follow, and, and that's kind of where we came from and where we're going into the future is to try to get more and more people involved in, in the actual management of, of the habitat, whether it's somebody's backyard. Because if you own a backyard, you can control... a. a portion of what happens as far as wildlife in terms of, of, of nesting capabilities for different birds, uh, different insects, and maybe some of the small invertebrates, obviously them, yes, but also some of the small vertebrates kind of thing. So even if you just have a, a pot with a flower in it, you live in a uh, apartment and you're in a high-rise apartment, chances are there's, there's something there that's going to take benefits of, of that plant in terms of either the vegetation or the pollen or... In some farmer facets. So, all of us, regardless of whether we own land in terms of acreages or we own land in terms of uh, a garden or maybe just a, a potted plant, you know, we're all kind of wildlife managers when you get right down to it. And so, as our populations have increased here in Texas, particularly our urban populations, one of the things we've tried to do is to spend a little bit more time in those urban t- situations and with people, setting up all kinds of uh, Old oh, class type things, whether it be for children, <clears throat> or whether it be an opportunity to uh, <clears throat> to visit with a bunch of like-minded people who are more interested in, in just bird habitat or bee habitat or those kind of things. So Texas wildlife truly means Texas wildlife. It includes everything that's here as an endemic species, as an introduced species, and also as a as a migratory species. Because in Texas we do have a substantial number of migratory birds that come through this area and, and maybe even some insects as well too. So two part of the Texas wildlife. But the commission was absolutely fantastic. We had, uh, uh had a really good auction, which I believe the one who plays a part of the color commentator, David Breminger, who is, uh, in charge of so many different things at, at, at TWA, uh, and he works with, uh, Justin Drabelis, who's our executive director, and our board of directors and our executive board, and we've got numerous paid employees, but we've got a lot of volunteer employees as well as two across the state of Texas that are very much involved in wildlife and, and teaching wildlife conservation and including getting kids into the outdoors and in so many different ways, but also adults. We now have an adult mentorship type program where we're trying to get more and more adults, those say from 18 years old and older into the field. Our, our youth hunting program that we're involved in, it takes a lot of kids hunting and since we started that program just not that many years ago we have had out probably in excess of 80,000 hunters that we brought into hunting 80,000 Now I get tickled every once in a while I'll be somewhere and somebody starts talking about the excellent youth hunting program that they have in their state and it is they're they're really good but then I said well uh, how many did y'all take hunting this year how many did y'all introduced to hunting and they, oh well maybe like I think the number was just right at a hundred and I go, man, that is absolutely fantastic. And I say, you know, we got this little program in Texas where some years, uh, when everything works right, thanks to our landowners who allow these people to come on through a hunt master program and they're, they're accompanied by a hunt master and also a parent. But I said, we've introduced somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80,000 people to hunting in just the last few years to, to, uh, you know, get them to understand what hunting is all about, why it's important to conservation and wildlife, why it's important to the habitat, because it keeps coming back to that. We've also got, we, we started years ago, kind of a field of fork program that's been picked up by a lot of different organizations now where we take them people hunting, taking people hunting, they take an animal, we show them everything you need to know about getting that animal to be put on the table. And then also some instances, We'll have a group together and with a chef there and he'll show them how to take that animal apart cut the different uh, cuts off the meat or cut different cutting parts of the meat, and then show them how to prepare it as well too so so very very many things that TWA does and has been involved in and, and what I'm most proud of and I'm most proud of the organization and where we've come to quite frankly but we also kind of serve as an example to other states whether it has to do with uh, youth hunting or whether it has to do with habitat management of teaching landowners and and anybody that's involved in the outdoors about wildlife and wildlife habitat we've kind of become an example at times of uh, people you know you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time that you try to start doing something so we've been able to bring a lot of folks in and say okay this is how this is a way to quote Tim Fallon with the F T W ranch, this is a way of doing things and this a way that we have has been very successful for us here in Texas, and as we've expanded into other program, those programs into other states, thanks to those other states coming to us, you know, we can say, okay, well, this worked in this state, worked in this state. Some of these may work real well for you. Some of you may have to adapt to your particular area based upon your population, based upon your land ownership availabilities in terms of access and those kind of things, but if you're interested in some of the things that Texas Wildlife Association does and gosh I hope I do whether you're whether you're from Texas or whether you're not from Texas and we do have quite a few members who are not from Texas because they love the beautiful publication that we put out called Texas Wildlife that's filled with good sound real world practical information not just information about research for research purposes but really have things that work well in different situations and again it's very very habitat based because you know whenever you improve the habitat for white deer or turkeys or pronghorn antelope or elk or whatever it is you're greatly improving that habitat for all wildlife and a lot of times those non-game species benefit more than what those game species do but also, more importantly, above all that, habitat benefits. And when you've got a healthy habitat, you're going to have a healthy wildlife population, a very diverse wildlife population. Again, from below the soil or in the soil, if you will, on up through the plants to the, to the all those that partake of the plants, including humans, by golly. So, but if you want to learn more about Texas Wildlife Association, you can go to wwwtexas wildlife l-i-d-l-i-f-e dot o-r-g that texas wildlife dot org, and there's so many things there we're in the process of, of right now redoing the website so uh, you'll find more and more things there in the future and, and they're really doing a great job we just had a had uh, our initial opening of our new building, the David Langford Center. David was one of our early executive directors that we had, did an absolutely fantastic job for TWA and we're very proud of the fact to have his name on that wonderful building. There's a lot of opportunities there. You can go see the building if you like. You can find the address there on the website, but it's about halfway between San Marcos and New Braunfels, Texas. There's an amphitheater there as well, too, for us to do all kinds of things late evening in the springtime and maybe even late summer and maybe a few other times of the year as well, too. But uh, absolutely great facility, great group of people involved in it, not only from those who are being paid by TWA, but also our many, many volunteers that we have across the state of Texas as well, too. But learn more about it at Texas dot i'm sorry texas-wildlife.org and uh i think you'll really be glad when you go there you'll, you'll see all the benefits of becoming a member and there, there are several membership levels there of course as well too but i don't care whether you live in texas or whether you live in kalamazoo michigan you know there's there's something there i think you can benefit from and something i think you'll greatly appreciate when you go there as well too One of the things I was really thrilled about this year is we had several of our DSC and DSC Foundation members at the convention. Uh, For a long, long period of time, I've been trying to get TWA and DSC together in terms of working together on projects where we can work together, particularly here in Texas, but also to take to where we can use TWA as an example in some of the other states as well, too as to what can be done if there's the if there are people there that really want to try to do something for wildlife in their states on a statewide basis as well too but we're very very fortunate to uh, to have several as i mentioned dsc members there and, and uh, including greg simons greg is a uh, one of our past presidents at twa and, and somebody i've worked with for a long long time to me, one of the finest individuals, areas in the world when it comes to do anything with wildlife or just as a person as well, too. But after years of my trying to get TWA and, and DSC together, we finally had a change in membership. I'm sorry, not a change of membership, but a change in leadership a little bit. And with uh, Justin Dribelis now there at TWA with the being the executive director and Corey Mason being our executive director at dsc interestingly justin when he worked for tpwd for a while was uh worked with corey when corey was a regional supervisor uh, for tpwd in, in the northeastern part of the state of texas so those two guys know each other they work together and finally now thanks to greg kind of being the instrument in getting this put together i think we're going to see twa and dsc working together a whole lot more in the future there are just so many different projects that we can be mutually helpful on not just here in texas but again using some of the programs that twa put in place where we can connect kind of to those in a in both a overall state or maybe even an international situation to adapt those programs to some of the other areas that uh, really can make a lot of difference in terms of policies moving forward uh encouraging people to vote and with that said it, it one of the greatest influences that we can have on anything is to get out and vote and spend time I'm talking about whether it's a local election, whether it's a statewide election or a federal collection, election, not collection. <laughs> but, uh, that's one of the best things that we can do is just to get out and vote and encourage all those who are like-minded as we are to get out and vote. Interestingly, only a small percentage of the voters, or most of the... Can, let me say it tell it, say it this way. Unfortunately, only a small percentage of the people who hunt and enjoy the outdoors really get out and vote in, in state and national elections. If we did, we might have a whole lot more influence on what happens and what we're doing right now. Sometimes we have to play defense as opposed to offense. And if more and more people got out and voted who supported those candidates who have some of the same ideas that we might in terms of wildlife, and particularly when it comes to the importance of hunting and the conservation of having plants and animals in the future. You know, I think we could have a, a greater voice in, in your your home state, but also certainly a greater voice in, in, uh, in Washington as well. So by all means, kind of getting off the subject there, but one of the things, we've got elections coming up all the time, learn all you can about the candidates and then by golly, get out and vote and tell your family to vote and tell your friends to vote. And all those in your hunting and fishing groups that you deal with, get those men and ladies out to vote. It makes all the difference in the world moving forward. But, uh, it was so great again to to see DSC and TWA kind of come together on some things we had several different opportunities to get together where DSC could see what uh, TWA's been doing in the past and and with the the leadership on on TWA side with that we have right now and also with DSC and uh moving forward into some of the officers that will be in place and are they're involved there as, as executive director but also as uh, directors of both the dsc foundation and dsc i really think we're going to see a little bit more cooperation in the future of, of helping each other and that's one of the great things about dsc is that we have a tremendous number of absolutely fantastic partners and Interestingly, DSC is one of these organizations that wants to get the job done. Now, they don't always get credit for what they do. If if everybody knew how much DSC does, both in front of everything and a lot of that we get done kind of happens, you know, in the boardrooms and in, in the offices of others and, and uh, offices of others I yell officers as well too but anyway it's it's one of those things that DSC does so very well they do so many different things and they're not out there as soon as something happens taking credit for it and that's one of the things that I've always appreciated really about both TWA and DSC and that was partly maybe some of my influence years and years ago of, of uh with, with TWA and, and to DSC as well, too. Let's get the job done. And if somebody else really wants credit for it, then, you know, I don't have credit. As long as we get the job done and we can get, garner more support for what we're interested in, let's just charge on forward kind of thing. But uh, anyway, the, the TWA convention was absolutely fantastic. I uh, got to spend some time with uh, Phil and and Karen Phillips, who are with Hayden Outdoors. and And they're... Two really outstanding salespersons. when you get to it when it comes to do anything with land. Of course Hayden Outdoors come on board here as a sponsor as well too and they're known as the 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 company that sells land the and they do. Uh, Hayden Outdoors has some of the finest listings are in the country when it comes to anything having to do particularly with wildlife and wildlife habitat and you know if you're interested in selling your property I can't think of I can't even imagine anybody that's better at selling your property and particularly to somebody that's probably as like-minded as you are about where you want to take that property and where you want to see it in the future. And- and and they'll help you find a buyer that is going to do that. It's going to carry on kind of the legacy of of wildlife on the property that you've been dealing with for the last several years. Whether it's old family land or maybe something that you bought, and and you might decide that you want to get you know it's time to move on to another piece of property. But those guys do an absolutely fantastic job. They're they're all over. The U.S. They're all over. They have outdoor television shows that are on uh, RFD and and the network station and a few others as well too, and just absolutely fantastic, great group of people. But if there's anything along those lines, whether it's selling land or buying land, get in touch with them and you can do that by going to HaydenOutdoors.com. and you can find them where the local salesperson is or, or the local salesperson where you might want to buy land as well, too. One thing about those guys, they're always going to shoot straight with you. They're going to tell you exactly the good points and the bad points about the property because they want you to be happy when it's all said and done. And if you deal with them, you're going to you're going to be happy. Getting back to the TWA thing, got a chance to visit with Phil and, and uh, Miss Karen, and uh, they've been running back and forth up to Colorado where Phil's still, or the, she and Phil, Karen and Phil, still have some property up there. And I, I think they're, it's where I'd be if I had an opportunity to kind of escape this heat in South Texas or Southern Texas for a while we're into an extended drought in in texas uh there are little pockets where we've had rainfall but the vast majority of the property is across the state is in a very dry situation we've had where i live now uh back west of houston away kind of close to where i grew up when i was growing up we had hot temperatures hot humidity high humidity but hot humidity as well too and usually the temperatures were like 98, 99, 96, 97. As I'm recording this, we've now probably had, I don't know, 20 plus days where it's been not only over 100, it's been over like 103 to 108. I just looked at the forecast for this coming week uh, from the time of this podcast, and, which is right after the TWA convention, and it looks like it's gonna be 102, 103 every day or so. You know, if you're going to be outdoors, you want to curtail the outdoor activities as much as you can, except for early in the morning. And it stays late hot. It stays hot late both ways. And uh, so it's an interesting time. We, we speak a lot about uh, global warming. And, and, you know, the earth for years, from the time it was created, has probably gone through all kinds of different cycles. And to me, yes, have we contributed to the global warming as, as a human population? Yeah, probably a little bit. But uh, the thing about it is this would probably occur whether we humans were here or not, to be very frank with you. It, it just seemed like the Earth just goes through very, very cycles, whether it's uh, ice ages or whether it's extreme heat. And, you know, we may just be in one of those extreme heat times. The, the scary part about all that is, is There are a lot of places where the wildlife is starting to be very adversely affected simply because there hadn't been much rain, so there's not a whole lot of moisture to produce vegetation. There hadn't been any rain, and so as a result, there's not a whole lot of surface water. A lot of the creeks are starting to dry up. The stock tanks, if you will, and ponds are are down considerably, and some of them have already dried up. I've got a series of little potholes on a usually dry dry creek there on my place and last time I was down there they were just about gone and, and I'm I'm afraid that by the time I get back there later this week that those will probably be dry and I've got a little stock tank that, that we pull the cattle away from so that the water that's there that's not lost to evaporation there'll be water there for wildlife. And if need be, we do have a pretty decent well on the property, on my brother's part of the property. And and if I have to, I'll just start hauling water and setting up some water trials for the deer and, and the birds primarily. So, uh, uh, you know, we need water. And as long as we have access to some kind of water, we'll make sure the wildlife on the property has some as well too, but uh, in the meantime, Looks like there's not a whole lot of rain in sight, but hopefully we'll have a tropical depression or something that moves across the southwest. A lot of times where we get a rain from, where there'll be something off the coast of Texas, that hopefully will not turn into a hurricane, but will produce a fair amount of rain for the state. But uh, I know there are other parts of the country as well, too, talking about some of the far west that's extremely dry right now as well. But, you know, hopefully, good Lord willing, uh, we'll end up with a amount of rainfall before the fall gets here, at least by the wintertime. If not, uh, I get tickled. Somebody told me that I said, oh, we don't have anything to worry about with water. He said, we'll just go to the grocery store and the, the restaurants, and, or the grocery stores and the, the convenience stores, and just buy all the water they have. Well, that water's got to come from somewhere as well, too. And usually it comes about as a result of rainfall. Uh, that's happened over the years past and as some of those wells start drying up uh, it's gonna take a while for that water to get back into the water table we've got a growing human population here in Texas that most of this country in talking about the state of Texas for the most part uh, we've always been a thirsty state and I'm not sure I, I don't know that I truly appreciate all these folks moving into Texas right now because a lot of them are coming from areas where they had unbelievable lawns. You know, you got to water the lawn every day and you know, and all those other kind of good things and, and uh, the use of water is tremendous and you know, a lot of those of us who grew up in this part of the world know how precious water can be and, and uh, so we're a little bit more conservative when it comes to water use and hopefully some of these folks will adapt very quickly because otherwise they're going to be some big cities and large metropolitan areas that never really planned to have this kind of growth and as a result they really didn't plan for the water that they're going to need to support the people that are there. So so some of these areas may be turned back into uh, wildlife habitat that have been taken out by rural expansion if you will or suburban expansion. uh, But hopefully that won't happen. Hopefully we'll have uh the the substantial amount of rainfall going into the late summer and early fall and some of these things will be turned around and and things will start getting better got a lot of things planned this fall and and, uh coming up first will be a a hunt for pronghorn antelope that's going to be in unit 56 which is kind of south of uh ronto new mexico kind of the central part uh northern central part of, of new mexico and this is on a piece of property that uh, Mr. Russell Stacey's been hunting with his family for the last several years and this year I'm going to go hunt pronghorn there with uh, Mr. Ken Darcy. Uh, Ken is a, a, a dear friend of, a, of a numerous years we've hunted together in places like Canada and Asia and spent a bare, bare amount of time talking about <clears throat> all kinds of different things. but. Uh, excuse me, but uh Ken is the the president CEO of Remington Arms and of course they have very graciously now become a sponsor here on our podcast, but they also sponsor Trijicon's World of Sports at the Field that's done by Safari Classics. And uh I try to do three or four of those shows each year with those guys and uh on this hunt it's gonna be Ken and I primarily hunting. Uh Russell Station I think is gonna be out there as well too, so Remington has developed a new rifle that they'll be introducing in the next several days. And I'm not certain of much of anything about the rifle. Uh, there are two things I have requested that whenever they bring the rifle to the hunt, which supposedly is going to happen, that it's topped with a trigicon, either a, a Huron or a acupoint scope and it's shooting nothing but Hornady ammo, uh, those two got to be very much favorites of mine. Things, particularly in terms of Hornady, I have been using for years and years. I think even before Trigicon became be known as a as a popular brand, particularly for uh, sporting arms. But uh, I've told the guys and said, "Hey, I don't care what you bring me, as long as it's a uh, uh, got a Trijicon scope on it." You, know, you got me a pile of. of the ammo so that I have the opportunity to shoot it a little bit before we actually start the hunt. But I got a feeling it's going to show up the afternoon of the hunt, or before, and afternoon before, and we're going to spend a little time on the range and then go to the field the next day. I've heard that it could be a 6.5 Creedmoor. I'm not real sure, but you know that's a pretty decent uh, cartridge when it comes to pronghorn antelope as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'd I'd be very open with you. It's, It's a great cartridge. Uh, and it's, but it's one of those that somebody either loves or hates. You very seldom find somebody says, Oh my God, it's a good mediocre cartridge. (laughs) Or you miss, Oh my God, it's the best service bit. Or it's, you know, I won't shoot one of those blasted things. But, uh, anyway, it is, is a great cartridge. I've shot it numerous times in in Rugers and a few other things. And haven't really shot a whole lot of stuff with it. I've, I've shot deer with it in Canada and a few other places. And I think took it on one pronghorn antelope hunt and, uh, so it'll be, that hunt will be fun. It's a an area that's not hunted very heavily, so there's some pretty good-sized horn bucks on that place. And, and over the years, I've shot probably... A couple of double full handfuls of, of pronghorn in New Mexico, Texas, Wyoming, well. Colorado, and, and uh, so I'm going to really be looking for a really nice big horn, long pronged antelope. I've, I've shot some really nice ones in the past. My longest is 17 and a half inches that I shot with Greg Salmon's Wildlife Systems over here, or in western Texas, about three or four years ago. And, So I'm going to be looking for something that's comparable to that, but maybe a little bit more massive and more prong length, because it's kind of typical of that part of New Mexico. They produce some pretty good mass and some decent or very good prong length. And so I'm going to be looking for one, hopefully get a chance to look over a whole lot of them before we put a stalk on one of them. Um, We'll do a podcast from out there once we do that. That's the middle part of August or latter part of August. Uh, I'm going to be taking that. A, we're gonna, a couple things i got to do between now and then and I wish I could shoot the rifle but I'll wait on that but the other thing that I'm going to do is in the past we played around a fair amount with uh, uh, decoys hunting the for pronghorn an antelope and the decoys that we use have primarily been uh, that of, of a cow, of usually the same color that you find on the properties that you're hunting. And then also, if the rut is approaching, those uh, those bucks will come to another buck. So rather than buy a commercial decoy, which I could easily do, but uh, it's kind of like oh, it's something I want to do instead is I've got a couple big sheets of, of cardboard that I'm going to fold and properly after I have cut out the the, uh, the shape of a cow and the shape of a pronghorn and painted those to look like like probably a black cow because that's primarily what they have on that property or Angus cattle and, and then a pronghorn that looks intimidating to uh, maybe another pronghorn buck and see if they'll, they'll come to it and i know that they will or they have in the past and i see no difference with this pronghorn herd uh, as compared to the ones that we've hunted in the past so i'm going to see if we can't decoy in one of them doing that and kind of add to the the flavor of the tv show and and uh but regardless, even if we don't, it'll be a fun hunt. I dearly love the spot and stalk aspect of, of hunting pronghorn and love the fact that you can literally hunt pronghorn all day long. You don't have to just hunt them during the time frame of early morning, late in the afternoon, as some people tend to do when they're hunting the, the antlered species. Uh, and of course, the pronghorn is a truly unique animal. It's the only antelope that annually sheds the outer. A sheath of their of their horns leaving the core to to, to grow a new one and uh, they have an unbelievable circulatory system in that too their their lungs are a little bit bigger they have a screen kind of thing that allows those animals to run up to probably 50 miles or more an hour with their mouths open and then even if they breathe, du- breathe dust <clears throat> excuse me this this filter filters out that dust Same, Kind of sound like I kind of need that kind of help here right now because we've got a vast amount of this Sahara dust that's blown in across the Atlantic particularly here in the Texas, it seems to be affecting me this morning. But uh, so really looking forward to the pronghorn hunt. And then later on, we're gonna be doing the landers one shot hunt up in Wyoming. And we'll learn more about that later on. I'll try to get somebody on that, that uh, either has been on the hunt or one of the officials and talk a little bit about it. And then we'll try to do some things while we're there. And then also after the fact, I will tell you there's just a very few people get invited to this every year and it's teams of three and I think you, it's only about eight teams that get to participate in it and it is a one shot. You get one shot in an antelope and uh, there's some other uh, criterion that you have to meet in terms of what you can and can't use I suppose for a rest and all that other kind of good thing but it's a the tradition that's been created since about the 1940s and something I'm really looking forward to being a, a part of. So I'll keep you informed with that as we move forward. Got a lot of good guests coming up here in the next several weeks. They uh, had an opportunity to meet, as I mentioned, with several people in, at the TWA convention. And several of those guys and ladies I really want to try to bring back on <clears throat> to have them do just a uh, uh, an individual podcast and kind of maybe even a Q&A. I'll put together some questions as well that that might deal with topics that they're involved in. Uh, While we were there at TWA, going back there again, we had an opportunity to once again visit with Shane Mahoney and uh, to develop the North American model and uh, wildlife conservation. uh i tell you what, the, the guy's an absolute great individual, a tremendous ambassador when it comes to anything having to do with wildlife, not only here in North America, but worldwide as well, too. So really enjoyed the time that I got to spend with, with Shane and had him in front of our group, TWA, some of the board of directors and some of our staff to have them get to know Shane a little bit better because there's so many things there, too, I think we can combine upon. With all that said, I've got to go sight in a rifle for a a pronghorn hunt, not this first one, but for the one shot, and also uh, for a a, a mule deer hunt I've got coming up a little bit later, or or I'm not sure whether it's the Baja mule deer or the Baja blacktail, but it's in Baja, California that we're doing in October. The rifle I'm taking on that thing it just had a muzzle brake put on it. it. Really didn't need to, but I thought it'd be kind of cool to have a muzzle brake put on, and had a little bit of work done on it. But it was a rifle that was put together for me—a Remington 700. Oh my gosh! Back in the early 1980s, uh, when I used to hunt a lot with uh, Mr. Bill Montoya, who at the time was the southeastern supervisor for the New Mexico Game Department. Bill went on to become the director of the uh, New Mexico Game Department for several years and then also served on the commission, but back when, he had a little gun shop in his house that he called Santa Fe Arms, so uh, I'm taking this Santa Fe Arms, well, 700 Remington and a 270 Winchester that had a bunch of trigger work done on it, some metal work done on it, and. Uh, I can't wait to get it all set up again. I've got a a trigicon scope I'm putting on it, and, of course, I've got a bunch of uh, Hornady ammo, and I've got, like, three or four different bullet weights and um, uh, loads that Hornady puts out commercially that I'm going to run through it and see which one it likes best. And that will be my go-to gun this year i think i've I've got a couple other 280s that i dearly love and i'm going to be spending a fair amount of time this year hunting with with handguns particularly the taurus raging hunter and uh, i'm leaving after this goes to the producer to uh, to pick up one of those in a 454 casule that i had some work done on and probably the the podcast immediately following this one We'll have him talking about the trigger job that he did for me, and a little bit more about handgun hunting and, and a few other things. Uh, so we'll have Ryan on probably next week. In uh, if you're interested in handguns, and even if you're not, you know there's so much to be learned. Handguns are no different than rifle. It, it's where the bar, it's where the barrel, it's where the barrel is pointed when the trigger is pulled, where the bullet goes. Uh, the bullet didn't go out until you pulled the trigger regardless i mean i've got guns sitting in my corner that have not been dangerous for years <laughs> because i've just been sitting there but uh we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about handgun hunting uh I want to come back and visit some more in the future with with jim Bequet. um uh, we've got uh, uh, several other people that i want to visit with kind of involved with twa a little bit but also from a hunting perspective and just a, a whole lot of people coming up in the next several weeks and just want to tell you how much we truly, truly appreciate you being a part of this podcast by being a listener because if you guys don't listen, I'm just kind of talking to myself and and uh, sometimes I feel that way because I don't really hear free from you for a while and then all of a sudden it seemed like oh my gosh I said something or somebody said something and I realized hey there are a lot of folks out there listening to this particular podcast but as we'll remind you at the end if if you have any topic that you'd like to have talked about if there's any particular guest you'd like for me to try to get on this episode or on an episode rather please just get in touch with me you can do so by going to uh, on uh, Instagram by going to at Larry Weissoon Outdoors that's the the at sign L A R R Y W E I S H U H N O U T D O O R S, and Larry Wayson Outdoors on Instagram, and leave me a message, or go to the Facebook page Larry Wysoon Outdoors and leave me a message there, and and uh, golly, we'll get back with you as soon as earthly possible, and we'll try every way in the world to, to accomplish what you've asked for, but. Thank you so very thank you again so very much for for being with us around the campfire. I really truly appreciate y'all. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC DSC's, DSC's campfires.
2: campfires with Larry Wisoon has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in Lagrange, Texas, H Three Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors.